0: Nomine patris et fidi spiritu sancti, amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus. as benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus.
1: Sancta Maria Mater de pro nobis peccatoribus, hora mortis nostrae. amen.
0: Nomine patris et fidi spiritu sancti, amen. Brethren in Christ, Lar tu, Jesus Christus. In secula. I'm here today, this morning, with co host Kennedy Hall. Kennedy, how are you doing,
1: brother? I'm good, how are you?
0: Doing excellent. We're here at Farmers Hours in the United States. So welcome to all of our European viewers. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the error of Christian pacifism. This is becoming increasingly a controversial topic in the United States. So we're going to try to give some historical background to address the question of pacifism and take a look at this from the historical viewpoint at looking at the moral theology so let's first talk about what what is pacifism exactly i know kennedy you talk in your book you basically say we are not pacifists in terror of demons there's a whole chapter on the crusades so how, how do we define pacifism
1: well pacifism is ba- basically the idea of non-violence as a response to aggression but as a truism as a platitude so in all cases essentially you know so if somebody Well, I mean, on the micro level, if somebody breaks into your house and, I don't know, has a gun and tries to do something to take your stuff and hurt your children or something, you wouldn't have a violent response because this idea that you would be responding with violence is somehow immoral. So, I don't know. It's an error. It's a heresy, okay, essentially. And um, C.S. Lewis actually has a pretty interesting essay on it that uh, you can find the videos of it online. Someone's done like, a doodle to it. You know, there's these things called C.S. Lewis doodles. They're pretty good. But, uh, I don't, I can't remember which work it's in when you read it, but it's just, it's a, it's a logical principle. You know, it's, it's illogical to suggest that we could be pacifists because, um, you know, although you may make the, and we'll probably talk about this as we go, but although you may make the decision that you yourself don't want to be aggressive, um, the idea that you wouldn't use any force whatsoever when having to defend those under your care is irrational. Um, because it goes against the common good and the protection of innocent persons, essentially.
0: Would you say that I, the, the the phrase that I was thinking of pacifism is is the pacifism is more or less the assertion that violence is intrinsically evil. Meaning yep. that yep. meaning that violence in any case, in any form, in any in any context, is evil always. There's never a, a recourse to to uh, not violence. Would you agree that that's kind of yeah, the basic principle it. of pacifism? Yeah. So, yeah, the pacifist, uh, and this is going to, we'll, we'll get into this, but this has become much more popular, it seems, since the 20th century. I think there was other pacifist movements in the uh, utopian Protestant radical reformers like the Moravians and Anabaptists and that type of thing. But it was a lot more in the 20th century with with three figures, Leo Tolstoy, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King. So we'll talk about those things. Um, But I want to address first, we talk about the... Because where these pacifists get these ideas Mm -hmm. in particular are the Sermon on the Mount, which says turn the other cheek, do not resist evil. And the... Did my my video just cut out? No, you're good. Oh, okay. My... My screen's messing up. I'm going to take off my other monitor to stop messing with me. Okay. So what they get from these, so the sun on the mount, turn the other cheek, do not resist evil. Yeah. And this is a, a classic case of, of sola scriptura, taking, taking the text of the Bible and just interpreting it for your, what mm-hmm. you think it means instead of what the church has received it to mean. Yeah. Um, and I was looking through some of these texts and some of the commentaries from the fathers and they point out. So Augustine looks at, looks at uh, turn the other cheek. And he points out that our Lord himself did not follow this, this command. If we take it to mean purely literal, you must always not resist evil and always turn the other cheek. When you hit are struck by one teeth, you have to offer the other cheek to the other, to the assailant as right. a commandment. Because when our Lord was struck in the gospel of St. John, he did not turn the other cheek, but rather said, if I've done evil, testified to the evil. Uh, If not, then why do you strike me? And so he faced his accuser and basically corrected him and called him on his, his injustice (laughs) and unjust assail. And so Augustine and the, the fathers understand this verse as an internal readiness to suffer yet more.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And that, that is what the verse means. It does not mean that literally every time you are attacked, you must offer the other part of your body, but because our Lord, was willing to suffer yet more. He -hmm. was willing to go to the cross. And that was his response to Mm -hmm. being struck on the cheek. But Augustine says that, and uh, the other fathers point out that our Lord is showing an internal disposition to, because the the internal disposition of the Christian is not to take vengeance on our assailant, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about in terms of proportionate violence, because we're not going to use our, aggression and our anger because we hate this man, this assailant to try to destroy him, but rather to have hit our correction of him is, is meant to be a, a mercy. If we are going to correct him like, as our Lord did. And so Augustine says that the, and this is coming out. If you look up the for listeners, if you look up the catena aria, if you go to meaning of com slash resources, you can find the catena aria. That's just St. Thomas Aquinas's. Chain of gold. Yeah, it's the chain of gold. It's just it, that is the most important commentary that you need for the Gospels. It, it's just a, a list of patristic citations explaining all the Gospel passages. Yeah. So this is where I'm getting these these things. If you just look up Matthew five thirty nine and look it up, so Augustine comments basically that. F- f- so an- another example of this very thing is that when our Lord rebukes the apostles when they want to send fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans, and He rebukes them and says. Our Lord came not to destroy, but to save. But Augustine points out that he's not, he's not censuring the idea of correcting other people, even by the death penalty, because he says the prophet Elias did that very thing. And prophet Elias commanded them to kill the prophets of Baal. Yep. Because later on St. Peter puts to death Ananias and Sapphira. He yep. curses them and they fall down dead. And yep. so, he what he's what he's uh, this is the same principle what Augustine points out in this other instance he says that this is an internal disposition against vengeance and personal animosity but a, a zeal mm-hmm. for justice and correction for this even if it's the death penalty for the sake of the common good is in order in certain circumstances so what, what I mean what you see here is that the fathers take the whole view of scripture and and you know when these protestant heretics they take one verse and then they use that as a principle to, to suppress other verses. And that's kind of their method of, of, of taking these things out of their context in the church. And then they're using them as a principle in their own in their own heresy to then suppress other verses.
1: Yeah, it's a truism. We have to avoid truisms and platitudes as Christians. So you can't take, you know, that's basically what a heresy is, is you exalt one truth or partial truth and you put it above all the others. So today we see this with the idea of mercy. So being a Christian is all about mercy. Well, mercy doesn't exist without justice. Like if there is no justice, there is no mercy and vice versa, because you can't apply mercy unless there is a punishment that is due to a person based on their transgressions. And then therefore, mercifully, you, because you recognize the person is a wretched sinner, just like yourself, you basically say, okay, you know, because of whatever reasoning, I'm going to, you know, uh, yield a little bit on the justice that is deserving to you, that you recognize you deserve, and that we all deserve for our sins, and therefore, this is an act of mercy. But you can't experience that act of mercy without the, the, the reality of justice. It's the paradox, you know, the, the, the Christian life is a very paradoxical thing, you know, we have to die in order to have eternal life, we have to recognize that we should be damned in order to be saved, you know, these are, these are things that, paradoxically we have to recognize as Christians. And when people say turn the other cheek, well, I like people to imagine just a second what a situation like that would entail. I mean, I mean, if you're if you're standing in front of somebody and they were actually to strike you and then you were to look at them and say, you know, here, there's the other cheek for you. kind of a Clint Eastwood moment. I mean, you're basically saying, you punched me in the one side of the face, here's the other side of my face, you can have that. It's actually quite a sort of rugged and tough disposition because what you're saying is you're willing to take your licks. So this is the thing about, uh, well, one of the things that we have to understand is Catholics. You don't have to suspend your common sense to be Catholic. In fact, common sense is actually encouraged. So if we think about, and this we'll get into this, I guess, but really this idea of pacifism is an error in how we would apply Catholic social teaching. So we see the advent of Catholic social teaching late 1800s, essentially. But Catholic social teaching is not a new thing. The reason why we see it, um, what's the word, presented by Leo Thirteenth and other popes at that time as something sort of comprehensive is because we live in a, in a world where we have post-Catholic states. So we've lost the papal states Um, There's, you know, the Spanish Empire is crumbling, essentially. So we have the emancipation of all of these countries that are, and there's the Freemasonic influence and, you know, various places like Ecuador, et cetera. Um, So what we have is we no longer have states where uh, just the Catholic dogmas are the de facto animating force of all moral decisions in politics, right? And politics are primarily a moral decision, an application of morality to the polity. That's essentially what they are. So what we have here is Blue the Thirteenth, specifically, and then others saying, "Okay, well, we have these Catholic dogmas. How do we apply these to secular states? Right? So we have to. Ha- so we've got to articulate that for the first time. Well, pacifism is an error in applying Catholic social teaching or Catholic Catholicism to the society, because we have to understand that the, probably the primary principle of applying Catholic social teaching is the principle of subsidiarity." So if you imagine society as these concentric circles and the smallest one is the family and then bigger than that is the extended family or the neighborhood or the region, you just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally get to you have your state, your region, your country, your your continent, et cetera. All of the larger levels have to be to serve the smaller level, right? Uh, It's almost like an inverted cone. At the top of that, the pinnacle is the family, but things get wider and wider as they go up. Okay, so what does it have to do with pacifism? Well, the reality is, is that Under, like, at all levels of society, there is somebody who has um, a responsibility to care for those underneath his jurisdiction. So, the smallest level, you have the family. Well, in the family, you have the headship of the father. Okay, so when we have these levels of society, that means that innocent people have to be protected. So, what we the error of pacifism is you individually as a person you can decide, and you should decide in some cases, especially certain circumstances, to take your licks. Christ decides to take his licks, essentially in the Passion of the Crucifixion. But he doesn't say, therefore you have to take it. You know, it's not turn your cheeks against violence, it's you individually, when you are suffering violence, it is virtuous to suffer that violence as a way of virtuous perfection. But you don't say, because I'm a father, And uh, there's an intruder in my home. Well, I'm going to turn the other cheek and my children are going to suffer. No, that's unjust because justice is every man receiving what is due to him. So in a situation, for example, let's say where you have um, vandals or something riding at your house and trying to destroy things. It's actually completely just. And you ought, if you can morally, um, deliver them the justice that they deserve as criminals because justice is every man getting what he's due. Your family isn't due suffering that they have no reason to suffer. Your family isn't due violence that they have not provoked. So basically that's a long-winded way of saying just the idea that you could have pacifism in a Christian society goes against the very nature of Catholic social teaching because it it would facilitate injustice against innocent persons.
0: Yeah, that's and this is the an important contract (laughs) that I'd like to get into as we get into the history between the perfection that clerics and religious are called to. They are called Mm -hmm. to a a perfection, a morality that is of perfection. It is of the world to come. They Mm -hmm. are, they are basically out of the, they are, they've got one foot in heaven and one on earth. Whereas the layman Mm -hmm. has to concern himself with the things of the earth by necessity. We have to work and toil and operate in the economy as necessity because we have duties to our children and our wives and so it's yeah. our morality is slightly different and it's not, doesn't mean that it's it is uh wrong and there's is right it's the difference between good and more perfect and and we'll, yeah. we'll get into that but I think I wanted to quickly make the distinction because I named this video the error of Christian pacifism and that's that plays to the distinction between uh, on the one on the highest the worst uh mm-hmm. Censure is heresy, and then below yeah. that is error, and yeah. below that is temerarious. Yeah. Where which I, I'm I'm arguing in the in this show. I don't know how much you'd agree, Kennedy. Basically, that so a heresy is something that is 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 a per, persistent uh, persistent stubborn belief in against something that is necessary for salvation and right. has also been defined or dogmatized in some way, either implicit or explicitly. Yeah. And you can go to mm-hmm. meaningofcatholic.com. Uh, on my kid, confession of faith, upper left corner under about to go into all these different specifics in terms of the theological notes. But a heresy is specifically against because sometimes people say things are heretical, which are are not heretical. Are not They're just a little bit lower. And an error is much more in regards to things that are much more implicit, which are mm-hmm. universally held, which are doctrines of the faith, which we say are certain teaches, for, for example, a teaching that is certain is something that's implicit that, that is all uh, you know, everyone believes it for centuries and centuries, but it has not been defined as such. It has not been raised to the explicit. So for example, an example is the assumption. The assumption Mm -hmm. was, would be, would be lower than it was before, after it was dogmatized. It was dogmatized. Now it's absolutely certain. So to, to go against it before was a lesser sin than to go against it. Now it's, it's a greater sin now. So below all of that is the temerarious position, which is the temerarious position is going against the common teaching of the fathers Mm -hmm. without any sufficient cause whatsoever on your own authority. You're just going to reject all these teachers who all say this thing. And it's on matters which are much more implicit. It's not something that's explicit. So I think there are many implicit references to this in the scriptures, um, but it is not something that is, very explicit in the scriptures it's not something that's laid out with a whole systematic doctrine as we get later so the this is i i mean i would say that this the christian pacifism is at least a temerarious position if not an error but i don't think it raises to the level of heresy because i don't think it's the idea has been dogmatized enough what do you what do you think
1: yeah i guess so i mean i think it's just a matter of distinctions like has the well because the christian pacifism error relates in my opinion to the doctrines i don't know if it's been dogmatized that we have about just war um you know because obviously we know that there are wars that are just or unjust or at least it's a principle that we can add to it okay we, we can apply to war is whether it's just or unjust so i guess it would also relate to things like the death penalty you know that's been a controversy because really what you have with um part of the death penalty logic is that it is an act of self-defense for a society because somebody who is a danger to... That's, that's one of the lower reasons for it. Ultimately, it's a matter of justice, a man getting what he's owed and offering himself an expiation, which is actually quite an important part of why the death penalty was always applied. But there is an aspect to the death penalty where it is a matter of self-defense, um, which means that that would be a just application of force, um, not for vengeful reasons like you point out, but just for the fact that it's not intrinsically evil to use violence against a person for reasons that have been justly applied. So I guess, I mean, I guess it wouldn't fall to the level of heresy or rise to the level in some ways. But even that being said, if you read Tim's, uh, Tim's um, treatise on the theological notes, and I use this actually in a recent, uh, in the next video coming out that I have for the Fatima Center on Evolution and Creationism. Even if it's not dogmatized as a heresy, you can still have a mortal sin against error because essentially what you have is you're committing a mortal sin against prudence. So for example, um, (laughs) you know, is is it a De Fide proposition that you have to pray the rosary every day to be saved? No, it's not because people were saved as Catholics before the rosary as we know it today was promulgated by St. Dominic. So clearly it's not De Fide in that you have to believe that you have to pray the rosary every day in order to be saved. But Our Lady did come in 1917 and say, pray the rosary every day for things like salvation and world peace. So if you know that and you say, well, I'm not going to do what Our Lady, you know, the Theotokos, the mother of God, of the incarnate wisdom, I'm not going to do that because I'd prefer not to. Well, there is such thing. There's, so, there's, there's something called being an idiot excuse my you know you know my expression there but it's like that's a sin against prudence why would you not do what the blessed i'm not saying it's necessarily a mortal sin i'm just saying there's a we don't have to suspend our common sense as catholics has it been dogmatized that it's a, a, an objective has it been anathematized at an extra council that thou shalt not be a pacifist of course not but there are A thousand and one different applications of justice within Catholic social teaching, within basic morality, where this would be an error in most cases if you were to apply it that way. So is it a dogmatized heresy? No, but you can be gravely sinful if you just simply go against common sense and good Catholic teaching for your own reasons.
0: Yeah, the uh, temerity is a mortal sin. It's simply yeah. a lesser mortal sin. It, it'll still <laughs> damn you. You'll still go to hell, but you'll have a lesser punishment than the heretics. I so, so. <laughs> which one do you want? You want a lesser punishment of the heretics, or I mean, people people are this is one of the problems is that people are setting aside common teaching. They're they're committing the sin of temerity. They're not heretics per se, but it's still the mortal sin of temerity. You're just setting aside the common teaching of the fathers. Exactly. You cannot do that. It, it, you cannot do that. There is a certain amount there is only in this in this level of theological note, the this is called sententia communis, the common teaching. There can be a a very just cause which is rational, which is within due limits, which yep. can sometimes change certain common teachings, which were really considered to be common or consensus, but they really weren't. They were just sort of popular. Yeah. And and that can be there are certain instances of that, uh, which we which now we're not even gonna get, get
1: yeah, into. But, another show.
0: but anyhow, they, let's get back into the into the history of this because there's basically three periods that this is something that I covered in, in Catholic social history, but there's basically pre-constantine period when the church was persecuted and there was no state church. And then yeah. there's the post-Constantine period, which is state churches everywhere, everywhere for Armenia, Abyssinia, <clears> Spain, <throat> England, every every place has a state church. That's yeah. just the, every saint wants to create a ch- state church. There's no saint who's saying, well, let's create a liberal polity where everyone has freedom of religion. That's, that's that's n- that does not exist. Yeah. And then later there's the post-1776 period, which is where eventually liberalism destabilizes all Christian monarchies, all Christian yeah. states. And then after World War I, there's really no explicit, there are certain explicit Christian states here and there. But most of all, it's yeah. mainly secular democracies at this point. Yeah. And it's really only at this point when when Christian pacifism begins to be a, a very large movement, as as we'll see. So what's interesting is that Christian pacifists, they're antiquarianists. They, they, they say, well, back in the pre-Constantinian era, Somebody named Tertullian said, well, we shouldn't even join the Roman army, not even because they sacrificed to the Caesar, but because they're violent and you know we're pacifists. And Tertullian says certain things like this. Now, yeah. Tertullian is a church father with a big, huge asterisk mm-hmm. because he died a heretic. Yeah. And so did Origen. Or, well, Origen did not die a heretic. He died in the bosom of the church. And he really would have, I think he would have renounced his errors if he would have been corrected. But um, Origen and Tertullian are both, take them with a big, huge grain of salt because some of their teachings are heavily erroneous, Tertullian in particular. So hmm. you, you shouldn't just take Tertullian as the authority. You should take Augustine because Augustine is a much larger authority than Tertullian. And, and really all the other fathers disagree with Tertullian in this in this instance and not only that because there's among protestants there's this myth that the pre-constantinian church was this pure beautiful church which was awesome and and they were all you know but um and and what we talked about the there were all these individual martyrs who were choosing to imitate christ to suffer and they were not retaliating and they were converting their oppressors because they were forgiving their oppressors they were not retaliating they were using this this way of perfection which is to suffer and die rather than to fight back but at the same time there was this very large cult of the soldier saints yeah and for example saint george one of the greatest saints in the pre-constantinian era saint george and he was a soldier and he was killing people in the name of rome the roman army and all these other soldier saints which that, that shows very, very easily that the church accepted, and you can re- read this you know, in Romans, the, R- St. Paul accepts the Roman state as a legitimate yeah. authority, even though they're worshiping demons. Yeah. And so you have this cult of the soldier saints, which there is no question in the minds of the early church that we should not venerate these saints because they killed in the name of the state. And so there is not this pacifism that you, you can pluck out Tertullian to think he's, he's this universal early church, but that's really not, uh, not the context. It's not the, the full view of the early church.
1: Yeah. And once again, it's a matter of prudence. So let's imagine a situation today. Okay. We don't have Soviet communism for now. Um, we don't have it where we live. Thanks be to God. So, um, I'm in a position now, as a, hypothetically, okay, father of a family, where I might receive a sort of soft persecution for my Catholic faith, maybe a white martyrdom, let's say you get fired from your job or things like that happen. Um, but I can resist anti-Catholicism, and st- my family can still be safe because I don't live in a place where I'm going to be violently persecuted for that. Now, it might be if I live in a communist state, like a real communist state, it might be that... Um, you know, the KGB shows up in the middle of the night and they say, you know, you're coming with us. If you resist, we're going to kill your family, you know? So at that point, I don't resist. I can't because basically my family is going to suffer as a result of it, right? Whereas today, if, you know, some vandals once again come and want to burn my house down because I'm a Catholic, well, the law still protects me, thanks be to God where I live. So I can actually go out there and I can do what I have to do to get these people off my property and still affirm my Christian faith. Because as a matter of, it's a prudential application. If you're living in the pre-Constantinian church, if you advocate for your faith publicly, you get executed essentially. So as a matter of prudence, you say, this is the unchangeable lot that I am in. So as a result, I will accept this. Because I actually want less violence to be applied to those that I love. So, this idea of, of, of how much force should be applied, it's always a matter of the prudential application in the situation you're in for the greater good of the, once again, the innocent not receiving unjust punishment. That's basically what it is. And sometimes, as Catholics, especially traditional Catholics, our world is so relativistic, our morality in our world is so consequentialist that we want everything to be absolutely black and white. The problem is when you have black and white, you actually facilitate certain shades of gray. So this is why we have to apply the moral principles to the situations contextually, because intent, matter, form, all these sorts of things, they're going to be necessary. So anyway, that's 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 important that you've, you've broken it down to pre-Constantine, to the Christian state. Into the post enlightenment countries because that really does change the change the uh, application.
0: Yeah. So and then when we get into St Thomas basically interprets these things the best. I'm um, not going <laughs> to read through this all through, but he basically breaks down the right of self defense. Yeah. So this is Secunda Secunda, question sixty four, article seven, and he he says this quote: "Nothing hinders one from acting." having two effects, only one of which is intended while the other is besides the intention. And he says, the, you know, if a man self events using more than necessary violence, it will be unlawful. So he's saying yeah. that you need to resist violence. You can resist violence with violence, but you need to yeah. do it proportionately, not intending the death of this assailant, unless yeah. it is absolutely necessary to, to uh, so protect your own self and your own property and, and children. And so you're, uh, this is, again, the internal principle of turning the other cheek. You are willing to suffer yet more uh, from this assailant, and you're one of, you are willing to forgive this person. You're not acting out of personal animosity towards no. this assailant. You are actually loving, loving this assailant and, and correcting him. But if he needs to be killed for the sake of yourself and your wife and your children, you will do it. But it must be proportionate to his violence. If his violence is just very minor, then you answer with minor violence. Exactly. If violence is severe, you answer with severe violence. It's not some it's proportionate. And that's because you're acting with virtue and moderation. You're not acting out of this rage that's just uncontrollable. And he says the um it is not lawful for a man to intend killing a man out of self-defense, in in the sense that he says, except for such as have public authority, who while well intending to kill a man in self-defense, refer this to the common good. And then he talks about a soldier fighting against the foe but then he also adds that even the soldier even they sin if if they have the public authority to kill a man and attempt to kill him they sin if they are moved by private animosity exactly and yeah. so this is a, this is another important point and this is something that's interesting when the post constantinian era comes in because after the the christian soldiers are now in a christian roman army they are still strictly they must at least in theory they must also repent even if they go into a just war and kill men they must still do a period of penance for private animosities that they had towards the enemy when they were killing them just out of you know wrath and so that that type of thing can to even come in as well so there's always this internal disposition of charity and justice and not this rage and animosity so that you're always acting with due moderation and in self-control
1: yeah and that's where um this is why okay it's very hard to uh find instances at least in the modern era of war where there's an actual just war fully like in this era where we have total war it's very hard to find a way to justify entire wars as being just however the the justice of the actions of the soldiers once again has to be applied to the individual soldiers in their pursuits. So for example, this controversial, but you you know, you could be a Japanese soldier who's on the wrong side of the second world war and has a kind of pseudo emperor cult worship, whatever. And you're, they're doing terrible things in China, but you yourself as a soldier through whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you find yourself in battle. So in that moment, you are responding to threats against your, against your person and you respond adequately with the force that is necessary. So you could be in an unjust war. You could be on the wrong side, but you are using, you are applying the force necessary for the preservation of your life, given the context that you're in. So you could be just in your application of that. This is why, um, you know, this, this is why we, we, when we have these things like, uh, in Canada, we have Remembrance Day, but you guys have Veterans Day, Memorial Day. Um, You know, I'm from Italian ancestry, my mother's an Italian immigrant, clearly um, there was problems with Mussolini, etc. But then when you live in Italy, there's still a commemoration of kind of what happened to various Italians as they went off to war, because they were kind of forced into a situation uh, based on whatever was going on with their government and with the Nazis, etc. But then those individual Italians, they had to fight for the preservation of their towns, which... For better or for worse, their country was on the wrong side, but their livelihood is being destroyed. Anyway, I'm getting out in the weeds here a little bit. But all of these things really stem from what is a just application of self-defense. I used to have a football coach, um, and he was also a cop. When he was done his pro football career, he became a police officer. And um, he explained to us one day, and this was in Ottawa, he explained to us one day, What their rules were about the use of lethal force in the police force. And I imagine that it's probably the same most places. And it was, he called it the one up rule. So they have a series of non lethal weapons and then they also have their lethal weapons and their guns, right? So basically, if somebody is a drunkard and belligerent, well, at that case, I mean, if they have, if they're no physical threat, then they just use their hands and their hands, handcuffs, and usually two officers if possible you know and then if somebody takes out like a baseball bat then they can go one further and they can take out their club or they can take out a taser essentially if somebody takes out something that is lethal or potentially lethal like a knife then they can take out their gun okay but they can't use their gun until the person tries to apply that lethal force against them or if somebody takes out a gun because a gun is de facto lethal then they're allowed to shoot even before the person uses their gun because it's the intent is to kill somebody, okay? So he was explaining that to us. And that, you know what? We don't want to get too much into the, the political side of what's going on with all these riots, etc. But that's one of the, the confusing things for people right now is there's people being shot. There are people essentially, in a way, kind of forming militias to protect their towns from what they see as threats. And you can see the errors of this pacifism that have uh, trickled their way down. So you have these violent riots and these so-called protesters, but really what they're doing is they're causing grave harm to businesses and some people are actually being killed. So you have these people that are basically trying to protect their communities and they're using their weapons and whatever they're fighting back. But we have this weird dichotomy where, uh, I don't know why people can't make connect the dots, but because individual civilians are, doing their best to protect their property and their person, and in some cases using lethal force, people can't make that connection that it's okay that when they are threatened, they respond with a commensurate level of violence that is, is almost using that one-up principle. You know, I think we've been raised too much on uh, police dramas, you know, and things like that, watching TV, and we think that when somebody pulls out a gun that everyone just has a conversation about it. It's like, put in <laughs> Put down your gun, I'm gonna shoot you if you did it. That doesn't happen in real life. When when a police officer or even a civilian on their own property, when somebody pulls out a weapon that can be used for lethal force, the legal framework in virtually all jurisdictions around the world has always been, you are allowed to respond in kind, okay? And you can respond in kind based on what potential the weapon they have is. So you don't stand there and say, you don't don't stand there with a, a burglar comes in your home and you both, Face each other down the barrel of each other's guns and say, uh, hey, man, I really don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to shoot you, whatever. No, you don't do that, because if he pulls the trigger, you're done. Anyway, that's just sort of a tangent. But those are my thoughts on the matter.
0: Yeah. Um, so I want to point out, go through. Uh, and that, that's great, because what you just said seems to be. A little bit stricter, even what St. Alphonsus says, because he yeah. St. Saint, Saint Thomas brings up Exodus 22, too, which says, if a thief be brown breaking into a house to undermine it and be wounded as so as to die, he that slew him shall not be guilty of blood. And St. Thomas uses this principle and later St. Alphonsus to talk yeah. about you can use lethal force to protect against a thief who is going to destroy or take your property if the property is of great value. Which ultimately, yeah. the great value is for your children. It's not like you're hoarding your riches or whatever. yes yeah. So, you, I mean, you can't kill a man for trying to, you know, steal a single gold coin. And this is something that's condemned by the Pope explicitly. But the, um, but you can, uh, wound a man and you're yeah. not intending to kill him. Like you're not trying to just yeah. kill him. But if you you are trying to use the necessary, your intention is to use the necessary force to stop him from doing what he's doing. And if that will, that may result in his death, but you're not intending his death. You're intending the one thing which could result in another. But the, the other aspect of this, I wanted to point out was, uh, summa Secunda secundi question 64, a four, which is where he says that priests and bishops should not be guilty of blood ever. And he says this quote, it is unlawful for clerics to kill, because they are chosen for the ministry of the altar, whereon is repre- represented the passion of Christ slain, who, when he was struck, did not strike. Therefore, it becomes not cl- it becomes not clerics to strike or kill. For ministers should imitate the master, according to Ecclesiast- Ecclesiasticus ten two, as the judge of the people is himself, so also are his ministers. End quote. So this is the higher perfection that a priest or religious is called to, in, when he renounces the world completely. He, were not, he takes his takes extra vows which are above and beyond what our Lord says is obligatory. They are above and beyond. They're super abundant. They are the world to come. And so that is why priests especially, and that's why all these, many of these martyrs, even, even though many of them were laymen, much more so it is for the priest to suffer and die and to never strike back in imitation of Jesus Christ because they are here to perfectly imitate Jesus Christ. And so it is a more perfect way that is, so It, it so St. Thomas is saying it's unlawful for priests, but St. Alphonsus also does admit that priests could kill uh in self defense, yeah. uh, just according to the natural yeah. law, but it is a more perfect way and more suitable. He says it becomes, it becomes the priest to suffer and die rather than to strike back because it's an imitation of Christ. But I wanted to get, we're, we're just kind of running out of time. We wanted to keep this within an hour, but the, um, so we go through the entire era of Christendom, if we call it. So, so basically, Constantine to 1776, or to, to 1917 or yep. 1918 with the World War One, which is all which is this principle is applied. And this is why we, we would assert that this is at least a common teaching, if not a sententia certa, because this is what yeah. all Christian states have, have acknowledged this, these principles. I mean, this is, this is really the only people who acknowledge this during this period who, who were pacifists were basically these Anabaptist heretics and these other utopians. Yeah, And uh, the, one of the biggest examples of this is when the, the, the Assyrian church, which was cut off from the church of Rome, which, which, was mixed up in heresy, but was later reconciled to Rome in the 1500s in the Chaldean Church. So this is an entire branch of the church that people don't know about, that people don't think about. Is that it's in a church that that stretched from I, uh, Iraq all the way to Japan, yeah. and there, it was some say it was the dominant church until 1300. It was it was very there was many Christians, and this church was entirely almost entirely wiped out by the Mongols. Mm-hmm. And they went for for aid to the West, but the West was too busy in the Hundred Years' War and not listening to St. Joan of Arc and putting down their arms. (laughs) So they they wouldn't go and help out their brethren way over in the East against these Mongols. And so they were almost completely wiped out. And you see this throughout history. You see that with the Mohammedans too. You see the Mohammedans just destroying. I mean, if there was not this Christian defense, and you see that when there is this Christian defense, like in places like Spain, then we can actually get back to Christian civilization. Yeah. And this is what's so wrong about these utopian mm-hmm. pacifists, is they don't realize that in real life, pacifism, and we'll talk about why 20th century pacifism was effective in us in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. But in, in the real life, when you when you take turn the other cheek in the wrong way as a state policy, yes, then you're just destroyed that's by the, the evildoer. And that's exactly what happened in these different in the different instances. And so that's that's what I think these these pacifists don't understand is that they're not really living in the real world. They're living in this utopian dream world.
1: Well yeah, and it's like you wouldn't apply for example a vow of poverty, which is a basic principle for every relig- professed religious in some fashion. You don't apply that to a father of a family. You know, it's like hey kids, we're all going to fast, you know, because we're not going to eat because we have poverty. I know you're five years old and that you're probably going to get sick, but we're going to do it anyway. That's just ridiculous. And that's, I mean, really? I was thinking about this earlier when you mentioned something, but it reminds me of the errors behind the Albigensian heresy uh, in that, because, yes, we're called to renounce worldliness, but we're not called to separate ourselves from the fact that we're physical creatures alive in the world per se. So the Albigensian heresy was the Gnostic dualism of the spirit is good, the, the the body is bad, fully applied. That meant people were basically starving themselves to death, even their children, or not procreating, committing suicide, these sorts of things. Freeing their bodies from this, freeing their souls from this 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 uh, what's the word? Prison of their bodies. There's a similarity to that in the full extent of pacifism, because it's this idea that interacting with the messiness of physical, biological reality by using force for the preservation of natural human life, there's this idea that must be bad because it's a worldliness. But that's just that's a that's an exaltation of one partial truth. And exalting it as the only truth, and it becomes a heretical or at least erroneous disposition. So it reminded me of the Albigensian idea when we were talking about that. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: this is why I think it's it's an extremely uh, dangerous error because it really denies the incarnation and the, yes. and the reality of the world and the fallen world. And so this is why. So so the the modern pacifist movement comes out of Leo Tolstoy. Yeah. who influences Gandhi? Mm-hmm. who and then they both influence Martin Luther King. Yeah. Now Martin Luther King becomes a public figure in 1955 and following when he organizes the Montgomery bus boycott, which is where for non-Americans, this is where they uh, they decided there were there were segregated buses in the South and they decided to organize this boycott unless they allowed the blacks to sit wherever they wanted to. So they were basically discriminated against blacks because of segregation and Jim Crow, which was unjust. And so they they organized a uh, a civil disobedience or, or or not even disobedience, but a boycott which basically mm-hmm. starved the bus income, bus profit so they were forced to capitulate to yeah. this this. So so really, I mean, it, right there this is a I mean this is fine, this is great. I, I I'm all for for the just a boycott against an unjust thing. We 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 should boycott uh, various unjust. Yeah,
1: to do that with uh, a lot of uh, yeah. yeah.
0: That's great. Um, and and what was great about Martin Luther King at this time is that when when they finally capitulated, Martin Luther King told his followers to forgive their enemies, yeah. to forgive them, and to be at peace with them. I mean, all this is really great Christian ethic. What happens yeah. is when he starts to get threatened at some point, he his and this is coming out of the what's a work known as the autobiography of Martin Luther King, which is just a collection of his own diaries and essays and whatnot where he discusses that when he was threatened as a man, uh, eventually the Ku Klux Klan, other violent groups started to bomb. They bombed his house unsuccessfully. He didn't didn't harm anyone, but they bombed his house. He knew he was threatened violently, but he was so obsessed with nonviolence as a idea and a utopian one that he chose not to have armed guards at his own house to protect his own wife and children because he believed in this nonviolence. That right there is when you've lost me at that point, uh, when you know that people are trying to bomb your house and you refuse to use armed guards. So this becomes a movement in the civil rights movement where other groups that are not related to Martin Luther the King, so the, the SNCC, the Southern Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is a bunch of college kids, other people are putting this into practice, which is where they're just civilly disobeying laws that are locally on the books. And then they're just receiving beatings for it and what happens is the federal gov the media blows this up and this goes across the world and suddenly yeah. John F Kennedy is in a position where he's getting pressure from other governments who are pressuring him to who to crack down on this because obviously there's this is this is being filmed and blown up all the world these these sheriffs are just beating these unarmed people who are not yeah. fighting back and so he sends in the troops and then the troops are the ones who enforce the, the actual breakdown of segregation, and yeah. so what what this really is is proxy violence. That's Martin right. Martin Luther King is using nonviolence to provoke violence from the federal government to actually enforce what's going on. So if there hadn't been the media, if yeah. the media hadn't blown that up, if the federal government hadn't been there, they would have just been wiped out. Yeah, exactly what happened in all these other instances we're talking about. Yeah. You know, there is. There, like I said, there is a place for a pure nonviolence and a pure, just a suffering, like we talked about. That's the more perfect way, especially for a single man and a layman and a priest, those types, or a, or a religious rather. Yeah. But we need to understand what made these things effective was really that they were proxy violence, and so the federal government came in and and sort of enforced the breakdown of segregation at that point, and so. Yeah. We need to understand that because Martin Luther King's idea was erroneous in terms of an absolute nonviolence. And he was he, he was failing to see that his the real ultimate solution to his problem came from violence, came yeah. from federal troops. And yeah. then I know, like Kennedy, I talked we talked before we started was on the other hand, you have the extreme of Malcolm X. Now, I haven't studied more of his philosophy of violence, but I've read his autobiography and his his constant refrain was by any means necessary. Yes, was was getting justice by any means necessary. But that's also an extreme on the other side because yeah. we don't say by any means necessary. You can only mean, use just moderate and proportionate means yeah. to attain a just end. You can't just use do anything. That that yeah. could be an extreme of injustice or violence.
1: Well, and once again, these things are truisms. You know, so people people confuse a lot of the time the golden mean that Aristotle talks about. We have erroneously turned that into an idea of all things in moderation. Well, that's not the case, because it's not you can't moderately use heroin. I just don't, <laughs> I only I only use it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's just it's a it's a I'm in the middle of the road with my heroin heroin usage. No, it's always immoral to use a narcotic for recreational purposes, right? So people will say, well, um, we don't have this. Once again, uh, we relativize things, and on the other hand. We overly simplify things where everything's always black and white. Neither of those are true. So with not with Malcolm X, by any means necessary is obviously wrong. The real and and on the other hand, with Martin Luther King, never fighting back is always wrong. In reality, what it is is using the principle of justice, prudential application of force based on certain unique circumstances for the protection of innocent people. So with. Um, Think about these large uh, manifestations of nonviolence through peaceful protest. That's great. But how do you have a peaceful protest? Well, you have rights enshrined in whatever constitutional documents animate your country. And then as a result of those laws being followed, you can have your peaceful disobedience to the state and no harm can happen to you. Well, why is that? Because the guys with the guns... Are on standing by, or at least implicitly standing by, and everybody knows it, so they can step in if people unjustly attack your person. So you can't have, and this is why, um, you know, St. Paul calls uh, the emperor diakonos, like literally, he is a servant, he's a minister in a sense of justice, because, well, the state wields the sword which at least in principle means they can facilitate the just application of force in necessary situations to protect unique persons who ought not suffer violence when they're innocent. And that's what's lost with both of those extremes.
0: Yeah, I love what you're saying, just putting out that you, you really can't be a pacifist. You don't have the luxury of being a pacifist unless the federal government is enforcing law and order. Yeah. so You've already got violence implicit in that law and order because it's a threat of violence and then you can be a pacifist all you want at that point, and you can you can do that peacefully. So yeah. people don't <laughs> you need to. So what now? What we're in right now is the situation that we're we've got ten minutes left. We're going to try to. I don't know if we'll get to questions or not. Sorry if we don't get to questions, but uh, we wanted to address the the situation we're in now. Well, the situation we're in now is similar to the fall of the Roman Empire in the West yeah. when the barbarians just basically took over, and eventually those who had weapons and castles became the noblemen who were willing to fight the the barbarians and the peasants and everyone gathered around them and created feudalism because they gathered around them and said, we'll give you food from our farm if you protect us. And and then they made an oath of fealty to each other and they made rights and duties. And this is what created the whole Christendom society Mm -hmm. after the fall of Rome. And we're we're in a situation where the civil authorities are forsaking their duties of enforcing law and order and they're, they're, they're just allowing these anarchists who are insurrectionists. Yes. St. Thomas talks about three different types of violence, which which allows a just response. One is strife, which is just person to person. Mm-hmm. Kennedy attacks me, punches me in the face. I can restrain him if if I can. <laughs> uh, and then uh, you have sedition. You have sedition is a group of people who are creating an insurrection of some kind, which can yeah. be resisted as well. Yeah. And then there's a war obviously which is more yeah. of a uh, an external force. So these are what we're dealing with is sedition. We're dealing with an insurrection where yeah. these these people are destroying people's lives, they're destroying businesses, they're destroying property. Yeah. A, a just use of force is entirely in order to oppose them especially because the civil authority has forsaken its duty to to enforce law and order.
1: Yeah. The civil authority—it's all laws that are positive laws, so laws that are—they're not divine or natural law—and um, even these include canon laws. They are the reason they exist is to build up the, in the civil sense, to build up the um, the peace and the uh, the order of your society. So for the so people can thrive um, and be safe. And in the Catholic sense, the laws of the church are to build up the body of Christ. Okay. In any circumstance, if there is a misapplication of laws, a failure to apply laws, or an application of bad laws that go against building up of the civil order or the body of Christ in the church, then those laws can be contextually and rightfully disobeyed, or even you can actively work to um, properly enforce laws. So if you have a society like what we have, we're supposed to have rule of law, and for political reasons, you have these cities on the West coast usually of uh, North America, where uh, the, the mayor for some reason is going to allow people to just riot and, loot, riot and loot and destroy your town. Well, at that point, if the police, and they might be told to stand down and there's nothing that they can do because they have a chain of command and whatever, I understand that. People within their circumstances, they can say, well, we still have a civil society where we have to have the application of our laws. And in a perfect sense, they're going to be applied by the police officers But the police officers are not in a position to do that for whatever reason. So, But the principle of the law still exists in that citizens can act on behalf of the state for the common good to protect their property and possessions. So in those cases, if those stipulations are met, then a person can stand in and act to protect his business, his friend's business, his home, and so on and so forth. And that's what we're seeing right now.
0: Yeah, and and I'm not we're not making any particular claims about any particular instance because we don't know all the factors because what, what, what's so important about this, this whole idea is that there needs to be proper intent and proper proper circumstance. All the proper things need to be in place so that you're not committing a mortal sin by killing a man unjustly or disproportionately or through animosity. And so you, you, we can't really say uh, unless these things are fully investigated about any of these, these cases that have come up. Yeah. Um, what I can say is that we need to get with our priest, get with our parishioners, get with the men at our parish yep. and make a plan yep. to, to understand what, what we're going to do if, and when some police officer in our city kills a black man yep. for whatever reason, whatever yep. happened there, I don't know, but it provokes yep. something in your, yep. in your city, what's happening in Kenosha and, uh, what happened in say uh, Minneapolis or elsewhere, it provokes something that ends up threatening your, your parish, your, your businesses, your community, your neighborhood, your family, your children, what's going to happen. What are you going to do? You need to, you need to be ready. You need to talk with your priest. And that, and this is why you need to make this plan now. Yeah. And you need to f- organize and and be ready. So, because they're already organized, they're going to bus in a bunch of dozens and hundreds of people. Or whatever. So what right. happened in, in Coeur d'Alene? in Coeur d'Alene was uh, yeah. that they sent, they were already ready. The BLM came in by buses and yeah. they were met by 1000 citizens with armed rifles Enough. pointed at them. And, and they said to the BLM, they said, leave or we'll open fire. Yeah. Which was a perfect example. I mean, I'm not going to make a judgment too strictly here. Like we Shout said, to Ryan probably, Grant, by the way. but yeah, we know we were told the story by Ryan Grant. Who, so he's, yeah. a, he's a, he's a, he's the resident there. So he, I I'm trusting his, his testimony of what happened, but basically what, according to him, they D- BLM showed up on a bus. They they pointed all their rifles at him and said, "Leave or we'll shoot." And then they turned around and left. And then they didn't shoot. And that's the key: is that they were of using a proportionate violence. They weren't trying to kill them. They were they were protecting their property. They said, "Just leave, and and you can go peacefully." That type of thing. I mean, I think that was a perfect example of a proportionate use of force. Yeah. Because they knew what they were about. They they threatened them to leave or we'll shoot. And I think that was a great. Instance of that.
1: What should have happened? Well, there should have been a police barricade. Exactly. I am mean, the cops yeah. in the situation, because once again, the politics and the the nonsense going on in the bureaucracies is just that—it's nonsense. And it's—and I, I do not envy a single police officer in North America at this point. That is like yeah. the worst job on earth. And right now in Canada, we have uh, yesterday Sir John A. Macdonald, who's our first prime minister. He was a Freemason, so there's a little bit of poetic justice. But nonetheless, he uh, his statue was toppled in Montreal. And I'm sitting there watching the video and it's, it's a bunch of, I don't know, like Canada and America are similar. We're very different countries. You know, we have our own problems, but to be honest, sometimes as Canadians, I don't understand why we do it. It's funny. There's no more anti-American bigot than the liberal Canadian. And it's so frustrating because on the one hand, the, uh, uh we're Canadians, we're better. Uh, the States are the worst um and you know as you ask what a lot of liberal canadians what does it mean to be a canadian well we're not american it's like well that's not an identity um you know the real truth is moosehead beer and hockey but anyway so but uh the problem is but then we import all of the american problems as if we have the same things and i'm like listen we've got our own issues we don't have to bring on any other we don't have to bring in another couple who's having a domestic dispute and then have that dispute within our own home if it's not our house leave it there let them work it out so we have all these. um. Canada is literally the least racist place on the face of the planet. It's like, I have—I don't know if I've ever met a racist in Canada, like a true racist. I've met people that are dumb and they make, but it's so hard to find an actual racist here. Multiculturalism is a law in Canada. We actually have it in our constitutional amendments that Canada is by def, by definition a multicultural site. It is impossible to be racist here. It's, it, it is, anyway, not impossible, but you know what I'm saying. So yeah. we have these people toppling this statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister. So I'm texting my buddy, and this isn't Montreal, this is an eight hour drive from where I am. But I'm saying, you know what, these idiots, they're going to appropriate these problems that are going on down south for whatever reasons. And they're going to start doing stuff in our little towns where we literally have nothing to do with this. So we're saying we have to talk to the guys at the parish, etc. And we have to say, we have to be on the ready for first if there's a threat of violence against our churches, which is inevitably going to happen because that's the trajectory of all these morons. And we're gonna have to just first have like a rosary brigade and we're gonna have to be out choosing the nonviolent option and just being out there praying, asking for our mother's intercession and so forth. But we're also just gonna have to be physically there. Whereas if they, if for whatever reason, the police can't do anything, they're going to say, well, we're gonna break down, you know, we have giant, we have a St. Joseph parish. We're gonna, we're gonna knock down the statue of St. Joseph. We have to be prepared to stand in front of that, um, in a lesser way than the Cordelline thing, but we have to prepare to say no, you're not, you know. But that's what's happening anyway. That was my tangent on these stupid oh, yeah. Canadian anarchists who are bringing in these problems that literally have nothing. Just as one more thing, and I'll get to this question. There was a um, a Black Lives Matter rally scheduled in somewhere in Alberta. Okay. People don't understand, Canada is like 86% Caucasian or some mix thereof. Outside of, if you go the rest of the country, outside of Toronto and various places, everyone is just like German or Ukrainian background from 100 years ago, farming families, whatever. There was a rally that was scheduled, Black Lives Matter, but it got canceled. you know why? Because there weren't any black Canadians who could show up to it in this area of Alberta. And I'm like, you're bringing in this problem of racism and you're in communities where there aren't any other races. Anyway, it's just absurd. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's
0: yeah, absolutely
1: racist in a place where there is no other races. It's just, anyway.
0: Yeah, so look, we'll take five minutes to try to get to some okay. questions. MSU um, MS, asks, how do you foster a Catholic generation of holy, physically fit, and knowledgeable men who would not hesitate to defend their faiths? First important thing is to buy box, yeah. a pair of demons. Uh, listen to this series. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do. It's what many Catholic men who are leaders are trying to do. We're trying to foster this generation because we need to inculcate this in our children. And I mean, the, the important thing, so many different factors. Yeah. Uh, but if you go to meaningofcatholic.com slash terror of demons, there's not only the book, but there's a lot of resources there. So there's a lot of different factors that need to be. Yeah. Um, but if you have an intact family, you inculcate this in your in your sons, that's what you need to do. Kennedy,
1: yeah, no, that's exactly it. And actually, just uh, I have a, f- a friend of mine. He, uh, I know him from the from the from from church, but he has like a family member who was talking about, I, I'm going to maybe mix it up. Maybe we talked about this on your show, but I can't remember. But um, basically, this dad decided he was just going to train his sons. And they're like, what are you training his sons for? And he's like, I'm just training them. It was just like he's like, I don't know, they're they're kid, they're teenagers in two thousand and twenty and they're soft. so I'm just gonna train them. so they and but the kids loved it. They just like we go to the park and we just run laps and I basically have a whistle and I'm treating them like they're soldiers. and he's like, they're fired up. He's like, what are they training for? I don't know, but some at some point in their life they're gonna need some sort of training. So you can literally just train your boys to just be men to do things that they hopefully never have to do, but when they do, they're ready. Very important.
0: Do you So Jonathan Taylor asked, do you think duty to retreat laws in the U.S. are unjust? I was not familiar with this. So he, he explained in the chat that a duty to retreat is the requirement of uh, a legal requirement in some <laughs> jurisdictions where if, if you're in a situation where you can retreat and run away, that is required of you and you should not use physical violence. And this is mm. this is I mean, it would depend on the situation. I, I would not trust the secular federal government or state government to really understand Catholic moral theology. Yeah. So I would I would use Catholic moral theology instead of whatever jurisdiction. Uh, it, you know, and when you're in a situation like that, I'm not going to be thinking about what does the local law say. I'm going to think be thinking about how can I protect my wife and children. What's the most effective means of doing that? Because that's my duty before God. That's what I'm going to be judged at day of judgment for. So it's not whether or not I follow local ordinance or whatever. So, but having yeah. said that, I would I would definitely say that retreat is uh certainly in order in certain cases so i think of dietrich von hildebrand he yeah. was sentenced he was an opponent of the nazis he was yeah. had a wife and one child and so this we may contrast for example saint thomas more you know he went to the death his death mm-hmm. um he did not flee in yeah. his situation that was the what's best for his situation whereas dietrich von hildebrand decided to flee with his wife and children he was sentenced to death in absentia by this nazis So, he, his, you know, his best way of fulfilling his duties was to flee. And that's not unmanly at all. That's saying, what's the best way to protect your wife and children? Going against the Nazi super state, you know, that's possible. That may not be wise (laughs) to try to do that. So, you know, trying to do that type of thing and like, and fleeing is is a much better prudent option in that case. So, I certainly believe that it just depends on the situation. You you simply can't uh, put a one size fits all. And I, I mean, so I, that's what I would think of that. Retreat. Well,
1: and in, in Thomas More's case, his other option was to explicitly apostatize. Right. Yeah. So that that's way. the problem. Like, alt, like once again, there's the perfect way, but with it's like Christ in the Gospels. You know, sometimes he actually flees the crowds because at yeah. that moment it's not it's not his time to die. Not time, right? but eventually it is. And in Dietrich von Hildebrand's case, um, e- implicitly he would have had to, well. I don't know if you call it apostatizing, but if he was to sort of go along and recant and go along with the Nazi problems, they go against the Catholic faith, obviously, because Nazism is not Catholic. Um, but he didn't, but he was it was more of am I gonna am I willing to become an enemy of the state or not? You don't have to become an enemy of the state in the in and stick around. And the catechism catacom- catacombs show us that. Sometimes it's okay to retreat and be secret, but then sometimes you have to stand your ground. And once again, it's not always black and white like people want it to be. It's going to apply to the circumstances and you're gonna to have to prudentially apply the principles.
0: Yeah. So that's why we, we need to not condemn all these, you know, these different instances, we don't know all the situation about it. What we can say is we need to be ready in our own communities and pray, pray the rosary, organize these rosary brigades and pray for the virtue of prudence in that situation so that you can have the prudence from God to make the right choice in the right situation for for God and for man. So, Let's offer up on our father at the end of this show. Thanks for watching uh, for this prudence that we can all have this prudence for this particular situation that we're in, whatever we're going to face in this situation, that we can protect our parish, our community, our wives and our children and be men of God. We pray for the men, especially because that's your duty. It's not fitting that a, that a woman go into battle or protect unless her husband has been killed by the assailant, of course, but it, it is your, it is your duty men to rise up and defend your wives and children, and the common good. So let's pray for the men especially in this prayer. Nomenie Patris, Filii, spiritu Sancti, Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in Cedis, Nomen tuum, adveni at Regnum Tuum, fia valotas Tua, sicut in cello ad in Terra.
1: Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis sodie, et ibiti nobis debita nostra, sicut et nostimittimus debitoribus nostris, venenus in duca santa sed libera a malo. Amen.
0: Nomenie Patris, et Filii, spiritu Sancti, Amen.